Welcome to the first episode of the first season of Endless Horror Trash. Yes, I've decided to keep that as a title, uh, and I'm going to count the Society episode as a pilot, so technically this is correct. I'm your host, Tom McFadgen, and to start off, thank you to everyone who checked out the pilot, and to everyone who got in touch about it. Uh, it was definitely, definitely rough and ready, with uh, probably the need for some more fact-checking. Um, but overall, uh, the, the feedback has been generally pretty positive. Uh, so I thought, what the hell, let's make some more, right? Um, today I will be talking about Toby Hooper's 1986 sequel to one of the most infamous movies of all time. Yes, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Should be one a fun one to discuss, both for the movie itself and for all, you know, all the hoopla that surrounds it. But before we get started, uh, I wanted to chat quickly about some films I've caught recently myself. Uh, Bristol Watershed, um, I'm Bristol based, but uh, any, anybody who does similar would know The Watershed, uh, has been in the middle of its cinema rediscovered season. And I was able to catch a showing of a remastered version of David Lynch's Lost Highway from 97, um, I, I think last week. Um, complete with an intro video uh, by, the, by the man himself, actually. Um, very kind of cameo level uh, kind of thing, but it was pretty fantastic. Um, this movie gets the highest recommendation possible for me, despite the fact that I was completely confused by most of it. Uh, I very much enjoyed enjoyed the ride, um, and very much had to read some some quite confused kind of uh, uh, explanations uh, afterwards. I don't, you, you know, when you're going online and you're searching for, for answers about a film, and even the answers themselves maybe don't know exactly what exactly happened. Uh, but, you know, the, the ride of old man Robert Loggia being crazy, ranting and raving and nearly killing a man over tailgating. He's such a good actor. I don't know what he did. That, 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 he, he feels like a man who, was, who just arrived fully formed as a craggy old guy and, like, big... And then just was awesome in everything that he was ever in afterwards. I have no idea if he was an actor when he was a younger man or not. Could probably check it, but it's spoiled the fun. Um, and one of the best music cues I've ever heard, actually, or heard and seen, I would say. Uh, Lou Reed doing a version of This Magic Moment uh, with Patricia Arquette, Arquette, Patricia Arquette as the centre of attention there and you know if you know it you know it um, Robert Blake is absolutely terrifying and very very memorable in his small role and it's clearly the sexiest Bill Pullman movie ever made somehow surpassing even while you were sleeping even Spaceballs even Independence Day um, high high recommendations to check that out I don't know if it's streaming anywhere it should be um, it's such an excellent movie um, I was also able to check out the atmospheric Charlotte, Charlotte Colbert directed uh, Dario Argento produced She Will um, which I think is certainly worth your time. Uh, some memorable visuals in it, uh, both nightmarish sequences uh, and also capturing the sheer beauty of the Scottish countryside really, really stood out to me. Um, Alice Krieg, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, puts in a memorable, caustic but affecting performance as an ageing movie star, healing following surgery, tapping into the power of witches murdered on the land years before. Uh, Rupert Everett is in it, and he's a lot of fun um, in his small role. And I've got to say, it's the first thing I've seen Malcolm McDowell show up in for a while where I've, I've actually enjoyed him in it. Uh, yeah, it's a while even since he played Loomis in those um, uh, Rob Zombie Halloweens. I mean, one scene featuring him invokes a pretty famous scene in Suspiria, uh, which makes sense with the Argento connection. Uh, at least, to, at least that felt clear to me and a friend who, who I watched it with, um, and that stood out as one of the more memorable parts of the movie. Worth catching it if you can. 
I was also able to catch the original Cape Fear from 1962 with uh, Gregory Peck and Robert Mitchum. Imagine most people uh, listening to this have, have at least come across, probably seen the Scorsese De Niro version from around 91. And, uh, you know, if they haven't seen that, probably seen the Sideshow Bob Simpsons episode uh, based around the storyline. Uh, but this is, if you haven't seen it, this is in its own way just as good. Um, director Ambristolian, J. Lee Thompson, was uh, just off the back of the uh, the the film Guns of, uh, The Guns of Navarone. Only, uh, which back in 1961 was one of the biggest hits of the year. I think it was only surpassed by West Side Story. There are there is horror elements I'm going to talk about in this podcast, by the way. Don't worry, not getting sidetracked with uh, West Side Story there. Um, he chose, following that movie, he could have made anything he wanted. He chose to make a pretty dark movie. Uh, Mitchum takes Max Cady right up to the line of what you get away with in 1962, playing him as a very abusive man, uh, scenes which I think would have shocked audiences in 1962. Um, he you know, is a character with paedophilic desires, um, or at least, at least hints towards them. Um, again, I feel pushing things were, were pushing things in 1962 for, for sure. I think, I think that would have shocked audiences. Um, there's also a thin connection to Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, uh, which I noticed uh, throughout. Which, you know, considering the movies that we're going to talk about today, uh, seems rather apt. Um, Bernard Herrmann does the famous Cape, uh, Cape Fear score only a couple of years after doing the famous Psycho score. Uh, and the actor who plays the amazingly named, uh, uh, the, the private detective Arbogast, what a great name, in Psycho, uh, Martin Baslam, Bal- Balsam, sorry, Martin Balsam, uh, shows up as one of Gregory Peck's allies in um, Cape Fear. Well worth checking out. Again, I don't know. You know, in an era where it feels quite easy to stream everything, I don't know how easy it is to stream um, the original Cape Fear, but well worth trying to track it down. Um, I mentioned Psycho and the connection between that and Texas Chainsaw Massacre being the serial killer Ed Gein. Ed Gein? Ed Gein? Um, famous for furniture made from uh, parts of human beings. Um the spark that lit the idea for Psycho and, you know, of course, uh, similarly, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, the following discussion will mainly revolve around the 1986 sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but I think as much as I want to avoid talking about the big hitters of horror, um, I'm really trying to stay away from just talking about, like, The Exorcist, The Shining, even Texas Chainsaw, um, but I feel context is needed, so we'll cover the original in some form today too. Um, so f- spoiler warnings ahead for Texas Chainsaw Massacres 1 and 2 um, before we jump in. Thirteen years ago, audiences across America were horrified by the savagery of a faceless killer. In the wake of this bizarre rampage, he vanished. Now, after more than a decade of silence, he has come out of hiding. Chainsaw Massacre 2. The buzz is back. Directed by Toby Hooper. Released in October 1974, 
initially to drive-ins and dives around the US. The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a true classic, a controversial note in film history, an unrelenting nightmare. The poster famously stating who will survive and what will be left of them. It's also surprisingly and very darkly funny, and despite its reputation, actually pretty bloodless. To steal a quote from, from The Simpsons, from Bart Simpson from about 30 years ago, it's pretty tame by today's standards. But nonetheless, it is a very, very funny movie. It's a dark, mean-spirited sort of funny, but funny nonetheless. From the cook played by Jim Sidow, which I believe is how you I'm going to guess is how you pronounce it, um, a character returned for the sequel, telling off Gunnar Hansen's hulking leather face for chainsawing through the door while he's chasing, busy chasing poor Marilyn Burns's Sally to the infamous nightmarish dinner scene, with the family of cannibals attempting to have their 107-year-old grandfather kill the last of the group of unfortunate hippies that stumbled into their house. A scene that f sees the feeble old man unable to hold the hammer, despite his grandsons continuously saying that he's the best at killing. It's about as blackly dark as it can get, but still pretty funny. The humour is as black as it gets, but it's there, which makes it interesting whilst researching this to hear how many times director Toby Hooper stated he was disappointed that no one got the humour and no one found it funny. Make no mistake, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a phenomenon. Can't barely say that word properly. <laughs> a minuscule budgeted indie movie that made a fortune in 1970s money. $30 million according to legit sites like Box Office Mojo. Although doc the documentary Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Shocking Truth, suggests that the true figure was closer to $100 million. Crazy 70s money. In true horror movie tradition, the creators got completely shafted once the film became a hit. See also George Romero. Gunnar Hansen, the original Leatherface, said that nine months after the release, his first royalty check was for $47.07. Those involved were being given points by a company that was itself only being given a fraction of the points of their overall film. So they were only making a, a, a small percentage, a fraction of what the movie was actually making. Production designer Robert Burns, who is, a, who is an absolute hoot on the uh, the Shock and Truth documentary, suggests that they made a dodgy deal with the Mafia, uh, or at least mafioso types, and uh, then they were surprised that they got screwed. But it was a hit, and it made careers, maybe more specifically director Toby Hooper's career. And its legacy only grew in the years afterwards. In the UK, the head of the BBFC, James Furman, called it a pornographic a pornography of terror and refused to give the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a certificate in 1975 when they attempted to release it over, over here in the UK. It was banned in the UK until 1998, around the same time a few other banned movies were being let out, just in time for me to eat them up as a curious teenager. Think also like The Exorcist, Clockwork Orange, those come to mind. Fast forward to the 1980s. Over a decade later, a few serendipitous things start to happen. Firstly, by the mid-80s, horror franchises are really coming into style. Freddy, Jason, Michael. Studios churning out relatively cheap-to-make horror sequels that as long as they, get, they give teenagers what they want are pretty likely to make their money back. Um, the excellent and very highly rated, uh, recommended on my part, uh, podcast The Evolution of Horror points to the movie Phantasm 2 as an example of this in, uh, in later in the decade. The original dreamlike Phantasm from 1979 was turned into a much more straightforward action-orientated but potentially franchise-kick-starting franchise sequel nearly a decade later in 1988. Production company hungry to start its own franchise, jealous 
debatably jealous of the um, the other horror franchises running around. I think you can also see it in a movie like The Return of the Living Dead from 1985. I think it's John Russo. Uh, I might have his name wrong. John Russo, one of the people involved with the original Night of the Living Dead, kickstarting the the uh, trying to restart the franchise there and adjacent franchise, shall we say, to to what Romero was doing. Um, with the with the Living Dead movies, um, you know, Return of the Living Dead spark, sparked its own franchise. Um, several sequels there, and so it was with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The original only uh, having built up more infamy over the decades since. A ready-made slasher icon in Leatherface, an excuse to make some low-budget shockers and make some money. Enter Canon Films and re-enter Toby Hooper. I'll talk more about Canon Films in a bit, but what you need to know is by the, 90, the mid-1980s, Canon Films, run by Golan and Globus, were the finest purveyors of Charles Bronson, Chuck Norris and breakdancing movies in the world. They made them cheap, quick and to turn a profit. But by the mid-80s, they wanted more. They wanted bigger stars, they wanted bigger directors, they wanted bigger movies. And once they got the rights to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they wanted a horror movie in keeping with the original. But returning director Toby Hooper wanted to turn up the comedy and the satire. Toby Hooper's big run came to an end pretty soon after the uh, the release of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. By 1995, uh, less than a decade later, he was directing the terrible, and, and I love trash, but the actively terrible Stephen King adaptation of The Mangler. But he needs respect put on his name. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Salem's Law, Poltergeist, all Stone Cold classics, and he is a very, very influential director. In 1982, he had a big hit with the Steven Spielberg-produced Poltergeist, the biggest horror movie of that year, and then the top 10 grossing films of 1982. A film that famously, following production, was dogged with stories that, well, he didn't really do the directing on Poltergeist, and in fact, producer Steven Spielberg deserved more of the credit. While some crew members state Spielberg was the director, it's worth noting that Spielberg himself compared the, his contributions to those of George Lucas on Raiders of the Lost Ark, saying that if people think he directed Poltergeist, that by the same logic, Lucas directed Raiders. Rumours or not, Poltergeist was a big hit, and Hooper was briefly seen as a big-time director. Unfortunately, Hooper's next three films, the mad space vampire-themed Life Force, Invaders from Mars, and the uh, Chainsaw sequel, would not be enough to capitalise on Poltergeist's success. And his days as a big-budget director, or a bigger-budget director, were coming to an end. The budget for the sequel was significantly bigger. The original cost around $100,000, and the sequel had a budget of $4.7 million. Not massive, but enough to improve the special effects and bring in the man, Tom Savini, to do them. You know, notice, notably, though, they didn't pay Gunnar Hansen enough to come back uh, to play Leatherface, though. It was enough to move locations away from the battered farmhouse to an impressive set where the now-named Sawyer family hold up. Apparently, Hooper had originally envisioned them as the Slaughter family, with the excellent pun W.E. Slaughter visible at the family's gas station in the original. But, of course, the bigger budget has a trade-off. Chainsaw 2 looks and feels different to the original. In the first movie, you can feel the uncomfortable heat coming off the screen. It doesn't look like it was a fun movie to make, probably because it wasn't a fun movie to make. And I think that's part of what makes it so uncomfortable. It looks a million miles away from studio films of the time, studio, film, studio films that came later. By comparison, Chainsaw 2 looks like a studio film. It's got an abandoned amusement park set, which while amazing, must have taken months to set up and looks like it took months to set up. Uh, everything looks like it's been placed specifically. 
Of course, I'd like to mention that despite it being a studio movie as well, it didn't stop it from having one of the probably the worst score I've ever heard in a, in a, a relatively mainstream movie. It, it really reminds me of the famously terrible Resident Evil soundtrack on the uh, on the first PlayStation, uh, the, the PlayStation One. Seriously, if you ever do watch this movie, it does sound like somebody's just left like one of those Casio keyboard demos on. It's pretty naff. Chainsaw 2 also has real movie stars in it. Des Hopper plays the driven lefty, driven to find the family that attacked his niece and nephew in the first movie, the same year he would play Frank Booth in David Lynch's Blue Velvet. Hopper had famously burnt out in a blizzard of cocaine in the early 70s, uh, specifically with the movie, the last movie, um, his one of his follow-ups to Easy Rider, but was in the middle of a string of good performances, slowly re-establishing himself over the next decade or so, um, River's Edge, Blue Velvet, both came out in 1986, the same year as um, Texas Chainsaw. Also, Francis Ford Coppola had used him to great effect in Apocalypse Now, albeit in the late 70s, and uh, later on Rumblefish. Um, a really great Dennis Hopper movie, if you've ever got the chance to see it, is The American Friend. The Wim, is it Wim Wenders or Wim Wenders? Um, the, the, the American Friend with Bruno Ganz and um, Dennis Hopper, an adaptation of a of a Ripley, as in the talented Mr. Ripley book. Hopper is fantastic in it. It's a great movie from around 1977. He would go to re, go on to re-establish himself as a director too with the film Colours in 1988, two years after this. And I would say that Hopper is probably the best thing or one of the best things about this film. It also has spectacular stunts and special effects that look great and also in a professional in a way that the originals did not. Again, we can thank Tom Savini for that. Compare the epic introduction of Leatherface in Chainsaw 2, sawing an obnoxious college frat boy's head in half during a high-speed car chase, with the more dangerous feeling, albeit a smaller scale moment with the hitchhiker and gunpowder in the van at the start of the original. It legitimately looks like actor Edwin Neal could have lost a finger despite it being a relatively small effect. Gunnar Hansen has talked at length in his book Chainsaw Confidential about the blasé stupidity of using real chainsaws throughout the filming of the original and how close he was to suffering some very real injuries. This isn't to say that I, that I necessarily would like movies uh, to put uh, actors in real danger. Of course not. That's, that's silly. Um, it's just that when you're making a sequel to a film where the actors were really at times in a lot of danger, um, it's very hard to replicate that when you're actually when you making a studio movie with safety standards. Um, and expect it to have quite the same impact. The original manages to convey more danger and more of a nightmarish atmosphere with next to no gore. Despite his reputation and the years it spent banned in the UK, the original Chainsaw isn't really all that gory at all. Whereas Chainsaw 2 is extremely violent and extremely gory in places, with some incredible practical effects from Savini. Faces skinned, heads cut off in two, walls full of blood, yet the sequel still feels safer and frankly never comes as close to being as unnerving. Another example I would take is Leatherface's mask, which in the sequel looks very much like a movie mask, um, whereas in the original just looks, it looks kind of real, I don't know a better way to describe that. Um, Leatherface's mask in Chainsaw 2 definitely looks like 
it was made by the same man who would go on to make Bray Wyatt's Fiend Mask, if you've ever seen that, any, any wrestling fans out there. Almost too professional. That said, the makeup on the now 137 years old, I think that's what they say in the film, uh, Grandpa is insane. It's incredible and really stands out as, as an improvement on the originals. Um, Savini, whatever else I'm saying here, do not let this take away from what, just how excellent some of the special effects are and the practical effects are from Savini on this one. Now, to go back to Hooper's disappointment that he felt no one caught the comedy in the original. He's definitely going for some wacky comedy in here. Everything is turned up to 10. Crazy gore, crazy characters like Chop Top, who feel uh, like something from a twisted Looney Tunes cartoon. Leatherface and his very phallic chainsaw played more for laughs this time round. Jim Sidow returning as the cook from the original is very funny. A businessman, albeit a murderous cannibal businessman, who acts like everybody's out to get the working man. At the start of the movie, he wins, in a very funny scene, he wins a chilli cook-off, um, stating that, of course, the secret is in the meat. Do you get it? Do you get the subtlety of, uh, of that joke there? Uh, the film's lead, Stretch, played by Caroline Williams, is there to report on this chilli cook-off like she's Veronica Corningstone reporting on a cat fashion show. Excellent scene. Actor Bill Mosley created a short parody film entitled The Texas Chainsaw Manicure, where he played a small role as the hitchhiker and showed it to a screenwriter who was able to show it to Toby Hooper in the years between the two movies. Hooper loved it and kept Mosley in mind for a part should he ever make a sequel. When the time came to cast The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Mosley was contacted for the role of the hitchhiker's twin brother, the deranged Chop Top. You can see uh, a clip of it in the shocking truth documentary, um, The Texas Chainsaw Manicure. And uh, he has his moments in Chainsaw 2. He is playing it, he is playing it very, very broad, very 10 out of 10. He has a plate in his head from Vietnam that Leatherface dings with a chainsaw at one point, much to his annoyance. And there's a very, very harrowing scene, actually, where he's simultaneously playing a 10 out of 10 for comedy, but he's bashing in a man's head with a hammer, which is pretty, pretty violent, actually, all things considered. Also think about things that were turned up to 10. There's a scene where Hopper goes to purchase chainsaws, which is just about as crazy as anything else in the movie, uh, played completely over the top, uh, is, is probably the best way to describe it. Well, again, well worth just checking out that one scene. But for a movie that falls at one of the most famous horror movies of all, of all time, it's not really that scary, I would say. Compare it to, say, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead, which also followed up a horror classic with plenty of humour, but was also genuinely frightening and creepy as well. Chainsaw 2 is very, very, very gory, um, almost making up for the lack of gore in the first movie. Leatherface keeps up the tradition of skinning people's faces off alive, and it has plenty of screaming as well. Caroline Williams' stretch definitely earns the, earns the moniker screen, uh, Scream Queen. She spends about half the movie doing exactly that, almost to an uncomfortable degree, actually. But I can't think of anything that comes close to Leatherface's sledgehammer introduction in the original for just pure terrifying horror. The film um, meanders there, meanders a little bit in the middle, but after a while, um, it gets down to a, a sort of climactic battle between Des Hopper and Leatherface, played out like a slow-paced samurai fight, just one with chainsaws. Um, it's weirdly reminiscent of the original Star Wars lightsaber battles, actually. And it's odd that for with the number of reboots and remakes Chainsaw has had, that there hasn't been a remake of that fight, albeit at a faster speed, or at least that I haven't seen. You know, one full of flips and double-ended chainsaws or something like that. If Platinum Dunes still have the rights, maybe they can give me a call. Still, it's a lot of fun. 
and then an especially cathartic moment at the end, as it follows a reimagining of the dinner scene from the original, right down to the ancient grandpa being wheeled out to do some killing and not being able to hold the damn hammer again. Upon release, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 made $8 million on a budget of around 4.7, not a flop, but it has to be classified as a letdown. According to Box Office Mojo, as I mentioned earlier, the original either grossed $30 million legit or, as the documentary speculated, maybe close to $100 million. For context, in the same year, 1986, Top Gun was the, uh, was the top of the box office charts. You know, the more things change, the more it stays the same. Worldwide, it made $176 million. Um, Crocodile Dundee, close behind, uh, with $174 million. Uh, as I'm sure you'll remember, in the late 1980s, the US experienced a short-lived infatuation with Austri Australian culture. For some bizarre reason, the Aussies thought this would be a permanent thing. Of course it wasn't. Horror-wise, Aliens, which is much more of an action movie to be fair, was by far a more successful sequel uh, and, and did a similar thing in tweaking what people remembered about the and liked about the original whilst creating something new uh, that they also liked. Aliens made $85 million that year. Um, Poltergeist 2, the sequel to Hooper's uh, 1982 hit, uh, Poltergeist 2 The Other Side, grossed $40 million, which must have stung to an extent um, for Hooper, as he's not involved. Cronenberg's um, The Fly came out that year, did about the same, $40 million. Um, closer to maybe maybe the, the kind of chat around franchises and things like that, Friday the 13th, 6, Jason Lives, showed the potential of tightly budgeted horror sequels, grossing $20 million on a $3 million budget, basically giving people what they want. And what they wanted was more Jason. Reviews were harsh. Roger Ebert hated it, worded at one star. It has a lot of blood and disembowelment, to be sure, but it doesn't have the terror of the original, the desire to be taken seriously. It's a geek show. Hopper thought it was the, one of the worst movies he'd ever been in. He would later say the same thing about Super Mario Brothers, but notably didn't say the same thing about Waterworld, although I've got to say, that's a joke. Waterworld is awesome. I'm not, I won't step down away from that one. Despite the, the reports of the low takings there, and, you know, it still would have uh, broken, broken, at least broken even when you think about uh, advertising costs on top of that, Caroline Williams has suggested that similar to the original, there was some creative accounting going on, aimed to show that the movie never turned a profit despite signs it did. Now, this is where we kind of talk a little bit about Canon Films. Um, a lot of that actually might have to do with the state of Canon Films it's, <laughs> where it found itself in the mid-80s. Chainsaw 2 is named as the beginning of the end for canon, according to the excellent documentary Electric Boogaloo. Um, canon went off their business model, make it cheap, milk it dry. They moved into bigger budgets and away from their assembly line. They tried to expand too fast, and the big movies that they put out at the time ran into money problems while they were making them, and then unfortunately were not big hits upon release, often losing money. Um, they made the, anybody of my vintage might remember, the Masters of the Universe movie, starring Dolph Lundgren as He-Man. Um, he's an utter legend. Seriously, such a such an interesting guy. Um, but he was also a victim uh, when, uh, when Sylvester Stallone visited the set and saw him acting. He asked one of the directors, you gave that guy lines? Maybe at the time he wasn't the best guy to be given too much to say. 
There was the cheap and terrible Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, where they cut the budget nearly in half, from $30 million to $70 million, resulting in a special effects movie with terrible special effects. Christopher Reeve famously told a young John Cryer on the movie that it was going to be terrible. And then there's Over the Top, the Stallone truck driver slash arm wrestling movie of your dreams that saw Stallone paid about $10 million more than he'd ever been paid. Cannon believed that this would be as big as Rocky or Rambo. And uh, it wasn't, and it did not set off a new genre of, um, of arm wrestling movies either. Quite soon after these movies, and along with Texas Chainsaw 2, Cannon was forced to shut up shop and um, went out of business. As the movie ends with Stretch aping Leatherface's iconic chainsaw dance from the first movie, it's hard not to think that this was an opportunity missed. Canon Films butchered the final cut, spent the filming looking over Hooper's shoulder. Hooper says that it was unfinished and the cast felt there was a, that a lot of what made it special was left on the cutting room floor. What can't have helped either is what we were just talking about, that Canon uh, were having financial problems. They would give and take money from the budget depending on how other films were doing at the box office. According to the documentary, Electric Boogaloo, the wild, untold story of Canon Films, Canon didn't realise it was a comedy, or at least a horror comedy. Uh, it was sold to Golan and Globus as a straight-up horror. Of course, if they didn't realise that, why is the poster a recreation of The Breakfast Club? The Sawyers parodying Judd Nelson, Ali Sheedy, Molly Ringwald and the rest. Was it mismarketed? You could argue the point either way. Hooper, as an artist off the back of a big hit from 1982, going back to the franchise he created, I'd argue that you'd want to see what he can do next. But no doubt after 13 years, maybe the audiences weren't looking for a subversive satire of the original. Maybe they just wanted exactly what it says on the tin, you know? Similar to what we were saying with Friday the 13th, uh, Friday the 13th Part 6 being a hit. Sometimes um, people just want more of the same. Still, this was the last time someone was free to do something different with the franchise before the many sequels, remakes and reboots fell into a similar pattern, a similar pattern of brutal, humourless violence and meager, mediocrity, repeating the same basic plot of the original time and time again. It's great that this, that this strange movie was allowed to exist before the sequels and reboots went back to the original with diminishing returns. And whilst I don't think it's a patch on the original, I would say that it's better than any of the other ones I've watched. That said, I will give a shout out to the third film's incredible Excalibur spoofing Lady in the Lake trailer. Well worth hunting that one down. Some tales are told, then soon forgotten. But a legend is forever. Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. Now, 
from the producers of A Nightmare on Elm Street. The real terror begins November 3rd. And so that brings us to the end of this episode of Endless Horror Trash. Um, I hope you, I hope you've enjoyed it. Even if the movie is not your cup of tea, I hope it. You know, I'm looking at it. I think it comes in just at about a tight uh, thirty minutes, or just over thirty minutes. So I hope it helps with the commute or, or anything like that. Um, I don't know what I'm going to record it on next. Um, oh, it's the excitement, the excitement of not of not knowing. Um, but yeah. Please like and subscribe or leave a decent review or whatever you'd like to do. Um, tell your friends, <laughs> please. <laughs> Not begging, but please. Uh, and um, I, do, I do need to figure out the, the social media side of things. But right now, if you want to give me a follow at TWC McFadgen, which is M-C-F-A-D-Y-E-N, um, I'd love any feedback at all. Um I, I really appreciated some people gave me some feedback uh, about the uh, the society episode, including um, you know, some helpful some helpful stuff around some of the <laughs> some of the fact checking. So if there's anything here that maybe um, maybe I'm maybe I'm off on, give, you know, let me know, let me know, let me know. Do you like this movie? Do you dislike this movie? Have you seen this movie? Um, that's a good point. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, is pretty easy to to stream. Um, I think it's on Amazon right now. I think I've seen it on Amazon. I'm not sure about the second one. Um, uh, that's an interesting one actually. With this, I'm, I'm curious if the canon aspect of things uh, impact distribution rights or anything like that. Ah, doesn't matter. Very easy to find on DVD. I watched the uh, the the two thousand and seven gruesome edition. Wow, <laughs> um, very very easy to find on DVD. Well worth it if it's a couple of quid. I'd say, and yeah, that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. Um, intro music by the New York Dolls. Trash by the New York Dolls. Um, outro music by who knows? Who knows? I'm gonna figure this out right at the end of the edit. Catch you next time. <laughs>